this part of the Bible Belt? The first question you generally are asked by a stranger starting a conversation at a party or moving into a new neighborhood is, where do you go to church? But in uh, much of the rest of the Western world, the first question asked to break the ice is, what do you do? One of our primary ways to categorize people is by their livelihoods. The importance of where you work and your implied skill set are signs of a market-driven democracy. Your value is your job. In recent years, asking what do you do has become more fraught with complications. After the second and third waves of feminism, women were put on the spot if they had the means and had chosen to stay home with their children. They were not living up to the having-it-all idealization imposed on modern parenting. And fathers ran into the same problem if they became primary parents at home. With the most recent economic disasters and financial downturns, asking, what do you do, can unearth despairing news of long-term unemployment. I don't have a job, or I got laid off, or... I've been looking for the last year. The conversation may get too personal too fast in this just getting to know you scenarios. This month at Hope, we're exploring together the theme of vocation, a variation on the question, what do you do? Vocation began as a religious term from our Christian tradition. It originally meant A call from God, especially a call from God to serve God in a priestly fashion. And after the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, vocation began to include the notion that God created each person with special gifts. And vocation became not just serving God within the church, but rather using God-given talents for a directed and purposeful life. Today I want to talk about vocation as discovering our gifts, wherever they may come from, but more importantly, using those gifts for the greater common good. First, let's broaden the intent of what do you do by backing off from taking the question to mean anything about economic earning prowess, world-saving abilities, or celebrity-level prominence. Instead, let's take, what do you do, to mean, what do you do with your time? Where do you put your energy? What brings you joy? What is the hardest work you do, but you do it anyway because it's the thing you do? It's the right thing to do. What do you do on your journey through this life to the final destination of death? What do you do when you skip effortlessly along the path? Or what do you do when you stumble? along that path. 
So with these thoughts in mind, the question morphs from what to how and why. How do you know you're doing the right work for you? Why are you working here and not there? From the recent experience of launching teenagers into college, I see, whoop, I see how the orbiting galaxy of questions surrounding work and vocation can be crushing. Our culture asks young adults about their future plans in such a way to imply that there is a single correct choice. Instead, I want to make the case that what do you do and how do you do it and why do you do it are all questions for each moment in our day. And they have multiple answers and change during our lifetime. Our vocations are a flowing, ongoing process. I'm influenced by Buddhist ideas here. The Buddha, after trying a variety of vocations, from being a pampered prince, protected, to a starving ascetic, came to realize work, indeed all of his actions, are best when they avoid extremes. After reaching enlightenment, the story goes, he described eight different steps for those of us following behind who might want to be enlightened. And those steps are known as the Noble Eightfold Path. And they're not in any kind of chronological order. They're interlocking and interwoven. In fact, they're often depicted as a circle or a wheel with eight spokes, illustrating how they're all connected, interconnected, related to a central hub, important for balance. And one of those spokes is right livelihood. Let's stop for a moment to look at the word right. Because each one of those steps in the Eightfold Path start with the word right. Right action, right speech, right livelihood. And hearing the word right in our modern culture, we're kind of prone to dualism, to simplistic black and white thinking. Dare I mention Congress and the political stalemate right here? Right seems to imply a stark difference between right and wrong. So to cut through this Western European misunderstanding, some translators of the Buddhist texts use other words to capture the meaning. More words that are like whole, whole livelihood, complete, even ideal. Today, here, we can talk about right livelihood as wholesome livelihood or wise livelihood, skillful vocation, or ideal calling. The Buddhist tradition does list occupations that the Buddha didn't consider wholesome. We are to avoid creating and selling arms and weaponry. Involvement in slavery and prostitution. Livestock rearing or butchery. And taking in drink, drugs, or poison. Trading in that. Sounds simple, like a simple list of right and wrong. After all, doesn't it? But when I heard that interview that Paula Haight 
read for us by the police captain who wondered if she could work towards enlightenment while carrying a gun as a cop. The answer she got back crystallized for me how we can turn any job, any task, into an, an authentic vocation, into a right livelihood, into non-exploitative calling. One of the retreat leaders said to her, well, who else would we want to carry a gun except someone who can do it mindfully? Of course you can take these teachings. So vocation is about what you do, but much more important is how you do it. We all might be a whole lot less anxious about our jobs and about how to guide our children into the workforce if we gave more emphasis to how we work. No matter what your job, do you bring your whole heart and soul into each project? Are you helpful to yourself as well as others? Are you honest? Are you fair? Are you paying attention? Or instead, do you bring negativity and complaints into the workplace? Do you find it difficult or sometimes even impossible to overcome impulses in order to get done what needs to get done? Do thoughts of loss or gain, financial or any other kind, dominate your life? Are you so easily inflated or deflated that praise or blame can make or break your day? Do you simultaneously long for the fame of center stage and fear the shame of exposure? Even the most noble profession or job can become rote or destructive to yourself and others. And at the same time, the lowliest job can become ennobled by intention or effort. A carpenter who just builds bridges. So I'm suggesting vocation is an attitude and not one reserved just for work. Vocation is a worldview of doing what needs to be done, no matter the situation. So I have two examples of the, this broader view of vocation. One example comes from a book I'm reading about church life called Serving with Grace. Lay Leadership as a Spiritual Practice, Serving with Grace. And it's by a Unitarian Universalist minister, Eric Walker Wickstrom. And I'm reading because as a pastoral-sized church with minimal staff, hope relies on the gracious, consistent efforts of hard-working members and lay leaders. Just to be able to sit here together for this hour requires the labor of dozens of people planning, rehearsing, brewing, directing, fetching, teaching, arranging. So the book proposes how to treat all these preparations as sacred, just as sacred as this hour we have together. The work leading up to worship is as much about intent and vocation 
as this service itself. So Wickstrom even describes how to make a committee meeting a spiritual practice. Tighten your seatbelts. <laughs> he describes how to approach an agenda. At a convenient time of day, a day or so before the meeting, not too far in advance when you'll likely forget it, or not too near when you might be rushed, take out the agenda and look at it carefully. Visualize the people who will be with you around the table. And any interactions you all might have had already regarding any of the agenda items, the old business. Think about what you might know about the feelings likely to be in the room regarding any new business. Here are the conversations. Who might bring up what? What hot buttons do you see? And while you're imagining the meeting, check in with yourself. How do you feel? Does anything you've envisioned make you feel anxious or excited, challenged, disinterested? Sitting meditatively, prayerfully, with the agenda beforehand can help you bring a mindful consciousness to the meeting so you can deal with the issues in front of you rather than projecting onto them all of your past association and future hopes and fears. So imagine treating any meeting at Hope as vocation, as something so valuable and precious. Picture how this sympathetic attitude would change the nature of our meetings, of our work together, of the quality of our time together, and of the choices and decisions we make. Boy, the same careful approach could alter any meeting in any setting, a school meeting, a political caucus, business negotiation, or even a tense family gathering. My second example of seeing vocation as attitude, as doing what needs to be done, no matter the situation, is a story about a man sitting in a restaurant in Manhattan, having dinner with a friend. They're seated at a table by huge windows overlooking a busy avenue. And they can see an unkempt homeless man pushing a large sharp shopping cart filled to the brim, pieces of clothing sticking out everywhere. And in the blink of an eye, a city bus swerves and almost hits a small passenger car, which then grazes the front end of the man's shopping cart, knocking it over on its side. Dozens, perhaps hundreds of empty soda cans roll to the ground, spilling absolutely everything along the street. A flash of emotions races through the man in the dining room, watching and feeling helpless at the man on the street's predicament. Homeless collecting soda cans in order to have a bit of money, almost killed. But suddenly, another diner 
a well-dressed woman wearing a business suit and heels steps out to the sidewalk. Quickly and efficiently, she sets to work chasing down the cans rolling along the gutter and placing them back in the cart. With the two of them working together, it's only a matter of minutes before the man is rattling down the street with his shopping cart and the diner slips back into her restaurant seat. So for me, the point of this story is that we carry our vocation with us beyond any workplace or job. Our right livelihoods are the good good works we do wherever we are. Vocation is how you spend your days. It's how you have prepared yourself. So even if you're carrying a gun as part of your work, you can have a vocation that betters the world. How you show up for a meeting, a simple meeting, can become a vocation that allows you to use your gifts in unexpected ways for the greater common good. And your calling may present itself even in the most mundane or unexpected ways, in a restaurant, in your car, in your neighborhood. As long as you keep your heart open and soft. May it be so.